Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. You know, I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, rock and roll is uh, the best way I can describe what's going to happen on tonight's episode of Sound Opinions, the world's only rock and roll talk show. We've got Steve Wynn, one of the pioneers of a psychedelic rock movement known as the Paisley Underground from uh, L.A. in the early 80s. An interview with Steve Wynn and a performance from his band, uh, later on in the show. Well, plus, professors Jim and Greg are going to school you because as Todd Bachman, our managing producer and director, said, you know, I, I, I don't know this guy. And I was like, okay, nobody on our staff did. Well, we're going to educate you about <laughs> the scene that spawned him. We've got reviews of new albums by The Streets and Van Hunt. But first, as always, we have some music news. The headliner for 2006 Lollapalooza, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> we have Kanye West. Manu Chow, Wilco, The Flaming Lips. Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction going to town on the headliners for uh, the Lollapalooza Music Festival, which is going to camp out in uh, Grant Park this summer, August 4 through 6. Yeah, that was during that press conference at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, when they uh, put Perry up on stage in Fred Astaire's suit to hype (laughs) Lollapalooza. This summer they're expecting as many as 225,000 people over three days, eight stages, the entire expanse of Grant Park from Hutchinson Field to the Petrillo Bandshell in uh, Butler Field. And, Jim, in a summer of festivals, we've got the big ones in California with Coachella, in Tennessee with Bonnaroo, in New Orleans with the Jazz Festival. Lollapalooza uh, hangs pretty well with these festivals in terms of its size and the breadth of its lineup. Absolutely. There have been a lot of news stories about all these different festivals filtering out there as they all compete for attention and leak, you know, this headliner, that headliner. I think that the nexus of the music world this summer is going to shift. It's not going to be in California. It's not going to be in Tennessee. It's not going to be anywhere else. It's going to be in Chicago because you've got three festivals, the two independent festivals, Intonation and Pitchfork, plus Lollapalooza. I mean, really, we're going to see 450-some-odd bands in the course of four or five weeks (laughs) in Chicago parks. Yeah, it's it's a ridiculous uh, bounty of music. The thing that's such a welcome uh, change is that I think institutionally, since this Mayor Daly's dad, Papa Daly, uh, had the MC5 beaten up in in (laughs) Lincoln Park uh, during the 68 Democratic Convention and, uh, you know, was aghast at the riot uh, that happened, uh, some would say a police riot that happened after the Sly Stone concert. Actually, before, Sly never even made it on stage. Oh, there you go. You know, there's been this attitude in Chicago Chicago that we don't want rock and roll, much less house music or hip-hop, in our parks. And yet, we're getting it in a big way this summer. Let's start with Lollapalooza. I mean, the exciting news to me is not the Red Hot Chili Peppers, old men playing funk badly. I didn't like them, you know, before they got old. It's the acts that are headlining. I mean, they are truly amazing. Kanye West and Common, two of the top 
acts on there. We've never had hip-hop in Grant Park. There's never been a major hip-hop concert on this scale at all in the city of Chicago. And one of the things that's really inspiring to me is if uh, hip-hop fans and, and, and Southsiders can blend with the alternative rock fans, uh, that was the spirit of Lollapalooza. Mm -hmm. We're going to put all sorts of stuff together. The original Lollapalooza would give you George Clinton and the boredoms from Japan and then the Smashing Pumpkins. That's a little bit of what we're getting here. It's like, let's get the best bands we can possibly get. Let's get as wide and diverse as we possibly can get and bring these people from around the world to our town to see this mega music festival. So Tennessee's Bonnaroo, which once was the jam gathering, uh, now has Tom Petty and Radiohead, the English art rockers, headlining this year. Right. Coachella, which once was the cutting edge of alternative rock, now has Madonna and the horribly tired Depeche Mode as headliners this year. No way you can beat Chicago and what's happening here with Lollapalooza. When you're looking for what makes a festival work in this day and age, what makes a destination festival works, it's the broad diversity of the lineup. How many of these little subcultures can we bring together in one place at one time and, and in some ways reincarnate the original spirit of that first Lollapalooza where you saw a lot of these little different cults and underground uh, you know, segments of the music world coming together in one place at one time and well, people you, looking around realizing, wow, there's a lot of us. You have members of the Flaming Lips sitting there being schooled by the Tibetan monks <laughs> yeah. who were traveling with the Beastie Boys, and the Beastie Boys are playing uh, basketball with the Smashing Pumpkins, and one of the things they're talking about doing to encourage that is there's going to be one continuous artist village, and they want, you know, they want to see Common get up on stage with Kanye West, or even more inspiringly, Kanye West get on stage with the Flaming Lips or Wilco. Right. They want to encourage that sort of thing, and that's where magic happens, the sort of thing that you can't see it anywhere else except this unique gathering. The other thing that we should point out here, Jim, is that these are uh, price to move. I mean, I, I like what they've done price-wise for Lollapalooza. Uh, I think the top ticket eventually is going to be like 50 bucks per day. They're now selling passes for 130 bucks For uh, three days. For three days. That's At amazing. At 130 bands, that's a buck a band. Exactly. Intonation, similar kind of deal. Uh, in Union Park, June 24th and 25th, tickets are very inexpensive, around 30 bucks. Pitchfork Festival in Union Park, July 29th and 30th, again, cheaply priced, 20 bucks for a day, 30 bucks for a two-day pass with uh, bands like uh, Spoon, Yola Tango, the Silver Jews making a rare performance. For details in all these festivals, the House Music Festival at uh, Northerly Island, the Intonation and Pitchfork Festivals in Union Park, Lollapalooza in Grant Park, go to the footnotes at soundopinions.com. I don't think there's a better single concert location in the United States than that lakefront in the middle of summer. And we ain't Chicago. just saying that because we're homers. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not. We've been to all these places, you know. And let's We've endured. Face it, yeah. Let's face it. Uh, you oh, my God. I'm still trying to recover from <laughs> Woodstock 94. <laughs> Coming up in the show, we've got Steve Wynn performing live in the studio with us with his new band, The Miracle 3. We thought this would be a perfect opportunity to look backward at one of the most interesting and enduring rock scenes of the last 25 years in Los Angeles in the early 80s called the Paisley Underground. Here's a, a tune from The Three O'Clock, and I'll explain why I'm going to start this discussion with The Three O'Clock. It's called Cantaloupe Girlfriend on Sound Opinions.
right. I think there were two people who were key influences on the movement known as the Paisley Underground. One of them is Steve Wynn. We're going to be hearing a lot about him later. He's going to be performing for us. The other was a guy named Michael Quercio, who was just singing there uh, with Cantaloupe Girlfriend, one of the the greatest songs by his band, The Three O'Clock. What you had was a lot of Gen Xers, my peers, kids who were born in 61, 62, 63, 64, and growing up in the uh, privileged suburbs of Los Angeles. Quercio was born and raised in Carson, California, uh, which is very near Hawthorne, where the Beach Boys grew up. And uh, he, he started, as all of these California musicians did, in the punk rock scene. He had a band called The Salvation Army. It was a pop-punk trio. They were signed to the Minutemen's New Alliance label. Right. And then he discovered psychedelic rock. They all did by going through their older siblings or their, their cousins or their aunts and uncles' record collections. They started discovering music from England during the psychedelic era and digging deep to bands like The Move and, and the early psychedelic Bee Gees and Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. And they loved this stuff. And they would go shopping in the secondhand thrift stores that predominate in Los Angeles and buy all this Paisley fashion that was at the height of the 60s psychedelic movement, 66, 67, was all the rage, both in swinging London and in the United States. And it was Michael Corsio who gave the scene its name, the Paisley Underground, referring to the clothing. It would come to be a tag that would haunt them and that they would all hate, much like grunge would be despised <laughs> by the Seattle musicians two decades later. Once you name something like that, you put it in a box. And in fact, this was a lot of different and very, very diverse music being made by a group of artists who did play on each other's records, who were fans of each other. And I think it's a scene in terms of its influence, whether you're talking about bands like Oasis in England picking up on it years later or, uh, you know, just in recent weeks, we've, you know, mentioned the Flaming Lips and, and the Secret Machines, all of these different psychedelic bands that are trying not to be rooted in 60s nostalgia to go somewhere new with it while still building on the history. I think the Paisley Underground was very influential uh, for all those groups, although they never sold any records. This is the early 80s. The only band that would break out of the American underground scene in that era was R.E.M. And Peter Buck and Michael Stipe were huge fans of these bands. But we want to kind of take you on a tour. In addition to the 3 O'Clock, there were a couple of other bands of note, uh, some of whom you'll be familiar with. The Bangles, go ahead and laugh if you want, if all you know is Walk Like an Egyptian, started out as a very, very credible Paisley Underground psychedelic pop band. They were trying to do what the mamas and papas had done with three and four part interval harmonies and that chiming birds guitar sound. This is an EP that's never appeared on CD. It was almost a completely different band. If all you know is Walk Like an Egyptian, you're not even going to recognize this. I absolutely adore the early bangles. And this is a track called uh, Mary Street from 1982. was uh, this fascinating pocket of music in the early 80s. Uh, a lot of these bands, uh, none of them really sounded alike, 
but they were bonded, I think, on this idea that they were punk-era uh, bands, but with a more expansive attitude about the kind of music that they wanted to incorporate. So they were obviously looking back to those trippy late 60s psychedelic records as inspiration. This music can be really expansive. What's wrong with long guitar solos? You know, we may be punk bands, but we can take this music into to places unforeseen. Well, they also really knew how to play and sure. how to sing. Absolutely. And there, was, uh, there were interesting little sub uh, pockets of this movement. Uh, the Long Riders sort of took it in more of a countryish direction and are cited now as one of those bands that uh, was a key influence on what became known as alternative country music. Absolutely. Uh, a band like Uncle Tupelo, uh, Sunvolt, the Bottle Rockets. Uh, it's hard to imagine bands like that without uh, the influence of the Long Riders, who uh, clearly had a passion for the Birds, who had themselves an interesting history in that they were both a psychedelic band and also the forerunners of country music feeding into rock music. So they, there was yeah, this yeah. country side to their, uh, to their music as well as this psychedelic The Long Riders sounded like the Birds playing Eight Miles High <laughs> if, if Graham Parsons was already in that incarnation of the Birds. <laughs> it was a, a brilliant idea to try that. Their song, Looking for Lewis and Clark, Clearly an anthem for that generation of bands, forging their own uh, path through the wilderness of the United States. There was no touring circuit for these kind of bands in the United States. Looking for Lewis and Clark, they were looking for, you know, the manifest destiny of these bands was, what was it going to be? What kind of dives are we going to have to play in in order to get our music out there? Because the radio stations sure weren't playing it. They had to go out there and play these little dives, you know, city to city for practically no money, just enough gas money to get from town to town. And I think the spirit... Of, of that early movement, that wandering spirit. Hey, we really mean it. We love this music. We're going to do whatever it takes to get it out of uh, the West Coast and bring it to the world is embodied by this song, Looking for Lewis and Clark from The Long Riders. the Long Riders looking for Lewis and Clark a great band Greg you're absolutely right but I think the uh, other masterpiece after uh, Steve Wynn and the Dream Syndicate's Days of Wine and Roses is uh, is a record called Emergency Third Rail Power Trip by the Rain Parade just an incredible psychedelic droning you know take you to another world in the space between the headphones masterpiece some familiar names in this band David Roback would go on to uh, front Mazzy Star uh, a band that uh, did achieve a measure of success in the early 90s unlike some of the others you know the poor 3 o'clock wound up getting signed to a major label in fact it was Prince's Paisley Park label (laughs) when it was still part of Warner Brothers and Prince started really interfering with them and I think kind of ruined the three o'clock. The Bangles, you know, signed to Columbia and uh, it increasingly became more and more overproduced and eventually, you know, fell apart. Um, the Rain Parade never did. They, they kind of wallowed in obscurity. This is one of the best songs on, on that masterpiece of an album, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. It's called What's She Done to Your Mind?
a lot of other bands were part of this movement, Greg. We can't obviously touch on all of them, but groups like True West and Leaving Trains and Thin White Rope and Green on Red were all, uh, you know, a big part of it. A lot of them made very good records. Most vital of all, I think, Steve Wynn and the Dream Syndicate uh, made their touchstone album for that movement, Days of Wine and Roses. Brilliant double guitar excursions between Steve Wynn and Carl Percota, really creating the excitement of psychedelic rock as it was in the 60s, but bringing it to a new generation of listeners who perhaps hadn't heard this kind of music before in the context of bands like Bad Religion and Social Distortion and Black Flag, who were then dominant in the L.A. scene. The Dream Syndicate really took things in a totally new direction with uh, their debut album, The Days of Wine and Roses, one of the masterpieces of that era. Absolutely. Let's hear something from that original record before we hear Steve and his band today. This is from the Days of Wine and Roses by the Dream Syndicate. It's called Then She Remembers. Then she remembers from the Dream Syndicate. Coming up later on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio, we've got reviews of new albums from Van Hunt and The Streets. But next, Steve Wynn and The Miracle 3, live in the studio. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. We recently had the chance to sit down with Steve Wynn and his current band, The Miracle 3, drummer Linda Pittman, bassist Dave DeCastro, and the great Kirk Swan on lead guitar, along with Steve. It's really dueling lead guitars, isn't it, Greg? It sure is. We started where we left off in the last segment, taking Steve back to the origins of the band and that Paisley underground scene in California. Steve Wynn is standing here looking about 30 years old, but he's been playing rock for 25 years. That means you started when you were about five, Pretty forming much, the yes, Dream yes, Syndicate yes. in the early 80s. I was sneaking into Dream Syndicate shows when I was 14, 15, 16, Steve. <laughs> really? Uh, 25 years ago, Dream Syndicate, uh, band out of L.A., really reclaimed psychedelic rock for the post-punk generation of kids who hadn't heard the first generation of those kind of bands. You mm-hmm. sort of brought that swirling back. Great band, broke up. You went on and made a series of solo records in the 90s. And now you're back working with more of a stable lineup for the last five years, it seems like. You've played five, 600 shows with these people in this room here. You yeah. made three albums with them. And it seems like you're back to that idea of, of a band, of a rock band, working together. And, and that's why this album sounds the way it does. Mm-hmm. You know, after playing the Dream Singer for that long and being in a band, when I went solo, I wanted, you know, that, that kind of pre-midlife crisis, musical midlife crisis freedom of just like trying everything and playing with everybody. And yeah. just, and then, but when it comes right down to it, I like playing in a band. There's certain things you get when you play with the same people all the time. You have that freedom to take chances. You That freedom kind of just know that somebody's going to be there to back you up, to hold you up, and they're going to know the kind of thing you're going to do in any situation and you know the same about them. You can just kind of do a lot more things. You guys were all over South by Southwest and played some great gigs, got a lot of attention. Ray Davies gave a panel. You probably weren't at the convention center. That was the three hours a day you were sleeping. But he gave a great panel. He <laughs> so said, you? Uh, "He said, you know, you can escape the tax man. You can escape the ex-wife. You cannot escape the back catalog. We, we mentioned the Dream Syndicate. Obviously, it's where we came in. You know, short list of many rock critics, one of the greatest albums of all time, mm-hmm. Dream Syndicate's debut, Days of Wine and Roses. You ever get freaking tired? I mean, you've now made 12 solo albums. That's conservative. I wasn't mm-hmm. even counting the semi-live ones, right. the ones where you were you know, collaborating <laughs> with other people. The ones I didn't approve. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, your life has been you know, two-thirds as long as Steve Wynn as mm-hmm. it was in the Dream Syndicate, but us damn rock critics are always going to ask you about the Dream Syndicate. And unfortunately, it's a band I'm proud of and a record that I'm proud of, so I'm not, i got no problem with that. I mean, if, if it was a record, you know, if I'd made a record I'm really embarrassed by, you know, that I, I can't but, stand, you know, and then just forever was thrown in my face, and I say, yeah, yeah, there's my baby pictures. And, well, yeah, that's a good idea, because you were part of that Paisley Underground scene. I'm sure there's some, some records that Michael Quercio of the 3 O'Clock doesn't want to talk about, or even know. Susanna Hoffs of the yeah, Bangles. Yeah. I think that we, whether it's through just determination or the fact that maybe half the time people weren't paying enough attention, whatever it was, we did what we wanted to do all the time. We made the music mm. we wanted to hear, so there's nothing to be ashamed of. I think the reason that record holds up is because it was an innovative record for that time. I mean, you're coming out of the L.A. scene, which it was noted at that time for Black Flag and X and Social Distortion. Great bands. And Bad Religion. All mm-hmm. bands were kind of post-punk or post-punk and playing these really short, sharp, angry pop songs, you yeah. know, just amplified to, like, you know, buzzsaw levels. And then here comes this swirling, intoxicating brew of, hey, guitar solos are okay. It took some guts, I would imagine, to go out and play punk clubs in L.A. doing that kind of music. Couldn't have been more unfashionable, you know, in every way. We had Carl with his long hair. We had feedback. The songs really would be 12, 15 minutes. We would go on stage and just play, as, as Kirk knows, because there's a whole different story there, we'd go on stage and play Suzy Q for a half hour. <laughs> I think that was the coolest thing in the world. We were the epitome of self-indulgent. And I think we weren't trying to make a career. We weren't trying to be a serious band. We weren't trying to, you know, look forward and do a million records and do... I would never imagine I'd be here right now 25 years later in a Chicago recording studio talking on the radio about the music I made over the years. We thought this was just a case of making music that we loved 
and wanted to hear because nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a lot, a lot of stuff to talk about, but we should play some music first. Okay, this is a song I want to do here. We're talking about oh, all the old Dream Syndicate things. Twenty-five years ago, I can't even believe the song is that old. This is the lead-off track from Days of Wine Rose called "Tell Me When It's Over." Awesome. 
So, you know, this guitar-based drums thing, it, it still works pretty well. Uh, <laughs> it's really an awesome thing to hear. A great a combo. A small group of men and ladies rocking out together. And, you know, that two-guitar thing, there's something that's uh, really cool about that, really timeless, you know, Carl Prokota and Dream Syndicate, you've played with some great guitar players over there. Chris Brokaw have come. Sure. Yeah. Rick Rizzo, 11th Dream mm-hmm. Day. Mm-hmm. Jason Victor of, of your band. Right, uh, who is on, on the record. In, in he's on the record. Yeah, yeah. And hey, Kirk, was, he, was he not able to tour with you, and that's why yes, Kirk stepped right, in? right. Beautiful interplay there. What's talk a little bit about that, Stephen Kirk? Maybe you could chime in as well. The, the chemistry between two guitar players. It's one of those things like jumping in and out of leads, knowing when to come in, when not to step on each other. That kind of thing has got to be really intuitive, I would imagine. And you can't get that with just anybody. It's 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 really it's a basic thing of all the bands we like. I think for, for Kirk too. That's that whole sure Neil Young Crazy Horse or Television or you know what Dumb Truck was doing, what the Dream Syndicate was doing. You can do anything with that. Just, just it's two guitars, bass, and drums. But sort of, you can imprint your personality on that. You know, if, if, if I play the C chord right here, you know, on this guitar through that pedal through that amp, it's gonna sound different than if Dave walked over and played it, because mm. Dave mm. would play it right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the key. Yeah. There you go. What what made you decide to play guitar, Steve? I mean, you were you were a writer early on. I mean, you're still a great writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoy your writing on your website. I enjoy your lyrics. But at some point, you decided to lock yourself in the bedroom for a couple of years, probably pre-discovering girls and, and, and drugs. Uh, <laughs> it all happened around age four. I don't know. <laughs> and you learned how to play that thing. Uh, you know, why? Why guitar? Why? I, th- I was a music geek from day one. I mean, practically. I, it was, it was like, all around me. I was born in 1960. I'm 46 years old. And it was a good time to be into music. You know, you could, you could be six years old and you could hear not only the Beatles and the Stones, but Creedence and Cream and them and the animals on the radio. You know, and, and even... Um, Little tiny little six year old kid, I'd hear that and it just smacked me in the face. And I wanted to play in a band from the time I was walking down the street in LA and heard some group playing garage rock in a garage and couldn't see their faces, but I stand outside my ears up against the door to hear what they Mm. were doing. It was always there. So I started playing guitar and playing in bands when I was nine. So why stick with it at 46? You make a joke, uh, I think it's in the bio you wrote on the website, that this is your sixth or seventh comeback. You know, but who's counting? Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Sixth or seventh resurgence of your career. It's tough. I mean, you're now running your own label. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys, you know, don't travel first class. It, it's hard work. I mean, how many nights you figure you're playing a year? hundred, easy, About right? a hundred a year, usually, yeah. That's tough. I mean, there, there, was, there was a period where the business messed with your head a little bit, right? I mean, you've written kind of frankly about that in the past. You know, <laughs> when you got signed to A&M, and there was the major label thing, and, you know, you were the new Springsteen for a while. <laughs> that, that was laden on you, and <laughs> God forbid, <laughs> that's ruined many a fine young boy. Including Springsteen. Yeah, right. He's <laughs> never recovered, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you kind of came out the other side of it, okay? Yeah, and there was definitely a process there. It was it was a very heady thing, you know. The, we were, as much as I say, we weren't looking for that. It was thrown at us. We were we were twenty two, twenty three years old, all of us, and you know, opening for you two and being on A and M Records, and it affected all of us in different ways. I, and in the fact that it affected us all in different ways is what hurt the band a lot. I don't think I ever told you this, but there was a night at Maxwell's where you knocked me over and dumped a drink on me. Just because I was in your way. <laughs> that was during those years. Um, but I love, I, I, you know. I'll buy you another drink. Well, I was, I was old enough at the time to think that was really cool. You know? Iggy Pop spit at me and Steve Wynn knocked me over once. I was, you know, my rock and roll bragging rights. Oh, man. I leave a trail of forgotten nights. <laughs> All right, we need more music. It's time for music. There's okay. nothing to follow that. <laughs> Yeah, we're doing some new stuff right now. This is from the new album. This is a song I call Cindy, It Was Always You.
thinking about you again It happens after one and two You know I had that girl of your the first She was your best friend Since that night I saw you Stuff. Love that's a great. That Nasty is awesome. Stuff. Nasty stuff. <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> Steve Wynn and the Miracle Three. We're here at Chicago Recording Company because it's pledge drive time over at Chicago Public Radio. So uh, we got to come over here, which is fun. And uh, Matt Lejeune and Todd Fitch are doing a fine job engineering for us. Yeah, it sounded great in here. Yeah. What's the key? I mean, if you were to tell a band, mm-hmm. hey, somebody, come, some kid comes up, you're 21 years old, you know, same age as around the same age as you were when you st- had your first major band. How do I do this for 25 years? You know, at the level you guys are doing, as opposed to like flying around in the Lear jets. I mean, you could, everybody can understand why the Rolling Stones would want to do it because mm-hmm. right. they're staying in four star hotels and they're getting flown everywhere and they yeah. basically never have to rehearse anymore. You know, with you guys, it's still the music is still a very important part of it. But what it's, would you say to that guy? You better make sure you like what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I always tell young bands, you know, the same thing. And, and I and I know that getting advice from guys been around for a long time, you're like, yeah, shut up, grandpa. You know, but you know, but I feel like the advice I tell people starting out is just remember this you are always right even when you're wrong you're always right because if you follow your own instincts even if it's the most insane thing and goes against everything that's ever happened before and it's just plain wrong if it's your thing and what you believe in then you're right and as long as you do that you're gonna like what you're doing have you ever done anything where you have gone against your instincts and found oh yeah that was yeah. really stupid i was making music in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> it was hard not to it was the most you know it, and that's something a lot of people don't realize who are younger now it was a really hard time to be making music, and I think we kind of left, we made it through about 80% unscathed, you know, there, but there's a lot of things, a few little drum sounds and digital reverb things here and there that I kind of regret, but it was a difficult time. It was the era of the producer, mm. and the band didn't matter. It's like, you know, I think the attitude was, yeah, we love your, we love your band, we love your songs, we love, you know, everything you're doing. Now, come in the studio, we're going to replace all of you with, <laughs> <laughs> with session players and machines and stuff like that. It was crazy, and you, I think that for the most part, I was able to put my foot down and say, ah, I don't see it that way. And kind of vindicated by time, because the record that was produced the least, mm. Days of Wine and Roses, is the one that's loved the most. Right, right. The, re- <laughs> the, record, <laughs> I made, the record I made in three days, you know, right. between midnight and six, you know, and, and really that's the truth, <laughs> is the record that is the reason why I'm still, still yeah. doing this. So there's yeah, some truth to that. I have to say, you with this band are making uh, amazing music that is every bit the equal of that. I think these last three records, and I, I think yeah. you feel pretty proud about them too, but... 
the, the Desert Trilogy, as they're coming to be known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the three albums you made in Tucson, really amazing records. And you're sort of back in that place again where that down and dirty, let's, let's make a record with a rock band in a studio and not fuss about technology seems to be the, where your head's at again. So a full circle kind of deal for you. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and for me it works. Absolutely truth in advertising. I mean, the red hot chili pepper on the cover <laughs> and the tick, tick, tick. I mean, you know, I don't think any album has had a cover that's lived up to just the explosive sounds included therein this this thoroughly. Thanks. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's spicy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's essential. <laughs> Steve, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure. I'm sorry it took us so long, but it was worth the wait to it have you down was. here to Sound Opinions. And uh, so uh, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And good to be here. See, the thing that's got it all offed up now is camera phones. How the hell am I supposed to be able to do a line in front of complete strangers when I know they've all got cameras? Well, you're a famous boy, it gets really easy to get girls. It's all so easy, you get a miss. But when you try to pull a girl who is also famous too, it feels just like when you wasn't famous. The celebrity pages in papers don't tell tales that are always to the line of the truth. It's to the line, it was just much likely you'll have the time or enough finance to sue. Which is why it's so frightening buying papers in the morning, fearing the next might skin a scoop. Because I used to believe what I read, so now I know that others will believe that it's true. Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is uh, Jim DeRigatis of the Chicago Sun-Times, and we're listening to the new album from The Streets. The Hardest Way to Make an Easy Living. That was a track called When You Wasn't Famous, which uh, unfortunately is all too typical of this record. The Streets is a guy by the name of Mike Skinner, who came out of England in a big way around about 2002, 2003, with a record called Original Pirate Material, and then really broke wide open with 2004's A Grand Don't Come for Free, which was a very funny concept album about an average bloke just trying to get through the day, return the overdue videotapes, <laughs> uh, you know, he's got, he's got rent is due. He's trying to save a couple of quid or a couple of pounds, whatever yeah. the hell. So he has money for a pint at the end of the day. Kind of him narrating 
a day in his life. Exactly. Uh, it, it was a very funny record. I think the music wasn't as great as you did. You, you were a bigger fan of it than I was. But it definitely was something to talk about. How much of it was the fact that Americans just really thought it was amusing to hear a Brit rapping with this thick Cockney accent? I don't know. I mean, we can debate. Certainly the music was of some interest, combining elements of electronica and what the English call the garage scene, as well as hip-hop. Now here he is with album number three. There is no more hoary cliche in all of pop music than the big post-breakthrough album about how difficult it is to be a pop star. <laughs> and that is what Mike Skinner, The Streets, has made. You heard in that song, uh, When You Wasn't Famous, I mean, what's he talking about now? How the hell am I supposed to do a line of cocaine in front of complete strangers when I know they've all got camera phones? <laughs> Elsewhere on the record, he's got a song called Hotel Expressionism, which is about the tedium of living out of your uh, luggage in four-star hotels. There's a song called Fake Streets Hats, which was prompted by an onstage tantrum he threw, I believe, in Amsterdam when he saw some bootleg merchandisers selling his hats and he wasn't getting a cut of the profits. We'll talk about whether or not this stuff works after we give you a taste of the the record. Let's hear track one, which kicks off the album, The Hardest Way to Make an Easy Living, The Streets, Pranging Out. I get back from tour and suddenly it doesn't seem like much fun to be off in my face at quarter to 11 a.m. I feel awful. The iron has been on in my house for four and a half weeks. I'm about to do something stupid. I dare say why my manager got Larry and smacked me. These headaches are getting unbearably nasty. Staring at the crack work, looking scary with my brandy. The rock and roll cliche walks in and then smacked me. Carelessly racking out praying just to handle the fear. I do a line but then panic and feel a bit praying. So I glug Marlon from the bottle to ease off the panic. Then when it starts wearing off, I just feel a bit sad. Snort more tour support and then have a drink. The bruise on the side of my head is madly banging. The only reason I started this was to deal me a laughing. The only reason I started this was to deal me a laughing. Pranging out from the streets, the hardest way to make an easy living, the third album, as you said, the difficult third album, the one about how hard it is to be a pop star, how now, hard now, it is to be a celebrity. Any, before we get any further, prang, prang is slang uh, in the UK, yes, for cocaine? Pranging out, a reference to crashing on, on cocaine. And, and essentially, this is one tale of debauchery after another. Rock star excess, groupies, sex, ego run amok. Fortunately, I think Skinner recognizes how ridiculous this all is and makes himself the butt of most of his jokes here. He's not saying, oh, pity me. He's saying, look how ridiculous my life has gotten. I'm a boob. That, however, doesn't redeem the material in my eyes. I think he's once again prized for his humor, his wise guy humor. But I think, Jim, what redeemed his earlier material for me, besides the wise guy humor, was the fact that there was an emotional undercurrent to it, especially in a grand don't come for free. There was a real sense of poignance in that record that combined with the humor made it, I think, a really resonant album. And the hardest way to make an easy living doesn't have that sort of emotional undercurrent. The only song where with, with really, a couple of notable exceptions, yeah, I know where you're going. The only song where he really gets to it is the song where he addresses his father, and it's kind of a, a moving little little song about uh, you know missing his dad, which is you know not exactly a sentiment that's talked about that often in popular music. No, it's it's called never went to church. Yeah. and I think the punchline again, even when he's talking to his dead father, he has a sense of humor. Yes, I'm going to see a priest, a rabbi, and a Protestant clergyman. <laughs> you always said I should head my bets. <laughs> exactly. That to me is the essence 
essence of Skinner. When he, when he does it best, the poignance com- combined with the black humor. But it's only there in one song, and I'm missing that emotional resonance in the rest of the record. Well, I think there's another good tune. I think All Goes Out the Window, which is a pretty effective and honest, in the sense that it doesn't make him look all that great, critique of male infidelity, mm-hmm. of, of, of messing around on your partner. The other stuff I don't, I really don't care for. I think the only one of the, the ruminations on pop stardom that kind of succeeds is Two Nations, where he's talking about the British-American cultural exchange, and primarily in the form of music, but not only that, but they invented the language, he tells us. Right. So all you, Amer- you know, in parentheses, all you American hip-hoppers who say I have no right to do this, don't forget, you know, we Brits invented the language, which is kind of a snotty <laughs> thing to say. Uh, he also says, uh, I'm proud we gave you people like John Lennon, even though you shot him. <laughs> Lines like that are great, but there's only so far you can go uh, complaining about your poor, famous, rich, miserable existence. And I don't I don't know. I never thought this guy was all that great to begin with. I got a lot of people who listened to the old incarnation of Sound Opinions gave me a lot of crap for saying he was he was sort of like the British Eminem. And I think that those traits really come to the fore here in the sense that Eminem tends to be incredibly paranoid, self-centered, selfish, egotistical, all the worst traits of Eminem along with the fact that he really can rap and has a vicious sense of humor, you know, you're seeing that same thing here with Mike Skinner. Uh, now that he has nothing really to rap about, just like, you know, you take away Eminem rapping about how he hates his mom and, and hates his ex-wife, there wasn't much left for him to do, and now Skinner, has he's worked his way up out of the streets. He has nothing really to talk about. On the Sound Opinions rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it, I can't give this a buy it, Greg. I think it's a burn it record, and only for two or three moments. I would burn those two or three moments, and the rest of it's going in the trash as far as I'm concerned. You know, musically, he's always been kind of chintzy. What I've liked about him is that he's completely made his own version of American hip-hop. He's not trying to become a South Bronx hip-hop artist. He's doing his own thing. It's very English. Uh, it, it has its own personality and sound, and I like that about the earlier records, but he's he's driving off the rails here. Uh, I, I see bad things if he continues down this path. There's only one track, maybe two, that I'd ever want to hear again on this record. It's a trash it for me. fanatics are probably scratching their heads thinking, where have I heard that before? I know that Mm -hmm. song. Well, that is in fact a song by the great band The Stooges called No Sense of Crime, redone by an artist named Van Hunt as if it were a great lost track from Sly Stone's There's a Riot Going On. Brilliant Uh, Completely recontextualizing this awesome garage rock song into something really surreal that Sly Stone might have concocted. Underscoring the fact that the Stooges, when they were helping to invent punk rock in Detroit in the early 70s, 
It was Motown. Absolutely. That's what they were listening to. There was a connection. They had that funkiness, that that groove. Van Hunt has got that funkiness, too. His 2004 debut album, widely celebrated, more of a singer-songwriter record. This guy came up through, uh, was born in Dayton, was raised primarily by his mom, mainly because his dad was a pimp. But he did sort of, was shaped by both influences. His mom, uh, very nurturing, had him studying music at home, and he uh, taught himself to play five or six different instruments. His dad introduced him to members of the Ohio Players and Slave, the, the, mm. the great funk bands out of Dayton. Later moved to Atlanta, uh, became a songwriter primarily. He, he had a breakthrough hit uh, with Dionne Ferris in 1997, Hopeless, wrote that song for her. I stayed just a little too long Now it's time for me to move on Van Hunt uh, eventually got signed to Capitol Records, put out the 2004 self-titled debut album. I think that was just a sort of a, uh, a testing ground, a mere smattering of Van Hunt's abilities compared to the new album, On the Jungle Floor. Before we talk about On the Jungle Floor, though, let's play a track from it called Ride, Ride, Ride from Van Hunt on Sound Opinions. <laughs> Ride, Ride, Ride by Van Hunt from his second album, On the Jungle Floor. He's all over the map on this record. There's a serious nod to Curtis Mayfield on the song Mean Sleep. There's a a bit of electro, electro funk on Being a Girl. There's a whole lot of Prince. The Mm -hmm. falsetto on Hot Stage Lights, that tune, Suspicion, She Knows Me Too Well. And then he's covering the Stooges. I think this is a good thing. The guy has a lot of talents, a lot of interests. He's interested in building bridges between sounds. And I think, as Prince did in his uh, mid to late 80s heyday, he's got the chops to pull it off. He really does. This is a better Prince record in a lot of ways than even the new Prince record, which is a pretty good Prince record. I agree. I I think it's better than uh, Prince's comeback records of of recent years. It has that same sprawling sense of we can go anywhere with this music. And I like that about this Van Hunt record. I think the debut record was very much kind of a constrained and and somewhat restrained singer-songwriter record. They tried to position him as the singer-songwriter guy. And I'll give you the ultimate proof of that. I'll give you the ultimate proof. Got some Grammy nominations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all you have to do is be conservative and sell records. You get Grammys. You know, a little more sense of freedom, a little more sense of experimentation in this record. I think it makes a big difference. On the Jungle Floor is a step up, and on the patented buy it, burn it, trash it sound opinion scale, I've got to give this a buy it. I'm with you. Double buy it for Van Hunt from the two of us. I tell you. 
tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. All right, one of my favorite moments in Sound Opinions, hearing that music and being able to introduce a Desert Island jukebox, a record that we cannot live without, and that's today. It's Jim DeRogatis' turn. Well, we alternate. We share. We play nicely. Mm -hmm. I am going to tie up, Greg, absolutely everything that we've talked about in this show, with the exception of Van Hunt and the Streets. I I, I don't think uh, there's a connection there, but that's okay. I'm going to play a song by a band called Dump Truck, which we've talked about before on Sound Opinions. I think it was 2004 that they did a reunion show down at South by Southwest in, in Texas. I love this band. I know you do as well. The reason it ties everything up is... Dump Truck was a group that formed in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, put out their debut album, D is for Dump Truck, in 1984. They were very much influenced by what was happening a continent away in the Paisley Underground scene of Los Angeles. Uh, they came sort of towards the tail end of that, but took it somewhere else. There was a, a, a psychedelic influence, but also a little more of the folk rock thing and the power pop. Their gods were Big Star, Alex Chilton. Television, the New York post-punk band or punk band, and Fairport Convention with Richard Thompson. Mm -hmm. They uh, would do a cover of Calvary Cross by uh, Richard Thompson and and Fairport that would just hand you your head on a platter. And in fact, when Steve Wynn was in the studio with us at CRC, they were checking their instruments and uh, they were playing Calvary Cross (laughs) because Kirk Swan, one of the two guitarists in Dump Truck, is now touring with Steve Wynn. And he he has been for some time. He's been playing with Wynn for, well, well, more than a decade now. He's also touring with John Wesley Harding. But I think Kirk has never been better than when he was playing with Dump Truck. And his partner was a guy by the name of Seth Tiven. These two guys were both guitarists, vocalists, and songwriters. Outside of television, I've never seen two guitarists work together so well. They were consistently trading off on rhythm and lead parts, but very, very melodically, It was as if these two guys were soloing the whole time and playing rhythm the whole time and anticipating each other's moves and call and response. It was just absolutely amazing. The lyrics could be a little dumb, but they were incredibly melodic. And Dump Truck was nothing if not very young and very, very earnest. I think the song I'm going to play from their debut, D is for Dump Truck, a song called The Live, sums that up. They're just singing about being happy to be alive. They're crossing America in a battered old van. They're sleeping (laughs) on friends' floors. College radio is playing them. People like me are writing about them in fanzines. You know, they're playing uh, divey clubs to 50 people. It was a way of life. It was a very kind of Kerouac beatnik ideal. Dump Truck never got their due, although Ryko Disc recently re-released all of their original albums. And just last week, they put out a great best-of collection. If there's one stop shopping I can recommend for Dump Truck, it's this new set called Hall, H-A-U-L, of Fame. This is Dump Truck Alive on Sound Opinions. Something in the night falls with the
That's a live from Dump Trunk, Jim DeRogatis's Desert Island Jukebox pick for this week. Next week, we've got another great show coming up. We're going to be talking about new albums from Pearl Jam and Bruce Springsteen, who's doing an album devoted completely to covering one of his heroes, folk pioneer Pete Seeger. Not that I want to prejudge this, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm going to sharpen the razor blade right now. <laughs> For splitting my wrist. So, uh, epic battles between Mr. DeRogatis and myself about Mr. Springsteen. And we've had some disagreements about, about both of those bands, actually. Yes, indeed. So, we're, we're looking forward to that on many levels. If you want to read any more about the stuff we talked about on this show, you can go to soundopinions.com, of course, and we're always happy to hear your feedback. On the way out, we got some folks to thank Matt and Todd, not our Matt and Todd, but a different Matt and Todd, over at Chicago Recording Company, helped us record uh, Steve Wynn and the Miracle 3 because it was Pledge Drive Central here when they were through town. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Pledge Drive, Tori Malatia is our executive <laughs> producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel, the Matt, is our producer. Jason and Robin, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are associate producers. Legal assistance from Dino Armiros. Technical assistance from Joe Dassault. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.